0: Passion for God and compassion for our neighbor, reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. Good morning, church. We're going to be in Psalm 86 today, so if you don't have your Bibles, go grab it. While I go over my introduction, we'll be in Psalm 86, which is a Psalm of David. Like most stories, it has three parts, a beginning, a middle, and an end. I'm gonna put up my detailed outline for you, so you can, if you're a Bible nerd like me, uh, you might use this as a reference. Several of you guys have thought that these were really helpful, so I'm gonna keep giving them to you. Uh, If this is making your head spin, I have a simplified outline. It's a psalm with three parts. I'm calling it an ABA structure because it begins and ends the same way. So we're gonna start with a prayer. Uh, David's going to pray to the Lord from deliverance from his distress. Then he's going to break out into Psalm in verses 8 through 13, which is, I'm calling a hymn or an ode to Yahweh, his God. And it's going to end back with that same prayer, uh, a prayer to deliverance from particular enemies or adversaries. Okay, so that's the structure of the the poem today. And I'm going to take my cue from this and I'm going to, call our sermons divided into three parts. So there's three parts to the sermon today. First, we're going to pray to the Lord from deliverance from our distresses. Secondly, we're gonna sing to the Lord because he is great among the nations. And third, we're gonna request deliverance from our adversaries from the Lord. So if you don't have your Bible with you right now, if you haven't opened it yet, just don't go get it. I just want you to listen to me for just a second, okay? So, Imagine if you went to to school and you went to math class and your algebra teacher invited you to open up your textbooks, told the class to open up the textbooks to chapter, say, 86 and you guys read the text as a class. You went through it. The teacher even worked out some problems for you up on the board and then maybe during the last 15 minutes of class she has everybody work on their home assignment individually. If during that 15 minutes, you go up to the teacher and say, hey, teacher, I need your help. Uh, I can't do my homework. If your teacher were to ask you, well, did you have your textbook open and were you following along? If your answer to that question is no, how much sympathy is your teacher going to have for you? Yeah, as about, as about as much sympathy as I'm going to have for you. Alright, so we're going to be looking today at Psalm 86 and I first want to talk to you a little bit about the psalm structure as a whole. So Gerard Wilson in his dissertation called The Editing of the Hebrew Psalter, he says, Any progress in understanding the purposeful arrangement of the psalms in the Psalter must begin with a detailed, careful analysis of the linguistic, literary, and thematic linkages that can be discerned among the psalms. The only valid And cautious hypothesis to which to begin is that the present arrangement is a result of the purposeful editorial activity, and that its purpose can be discerned by careful, exhaustive analysis of the linguistic and thematic relationships between the individual psalms and the group of psalms. In case you're like, Andy, what did you just say? What he's saying is there's a purposeful arrangement to the psalms, that by studying the psalms, you'll actually see a coherent arrangement to it. Let me walk you through what I mean. Psalms 1 and 2 are an introduction to the book of the Psalms. It starts off in a garden and invites you to meditate on God's law. Psalm 2 teaches us about the Lord's anointed king, that he requires submission and obedience. So Psalms 1 and 2 focus on adherence to God's law and to God's king. That's the introduction that frames the rest of the Psalter. Now books 1 and 2 of the Psalter, which takes us through Psalm 72, walk us roughly chronologically through the life of King David. Now book, and after that, Psalm 72, it actually says the prayers of King, or the Psalms of King David are ended. That doesn't mean that's the last Psalm you're going to see in the Psalter by David. That just means chronologically you finished walking through his Life. Now Psalm 3 takes us into uh, the Assyrian crisis, or the, the fall of Jerusalem. First through the Assyrian crisis, and then the Babylonian crisis, and then takes us into exile. Book 4 looks forward to the reign, at Lord's reign, as king over his new city, which he is building. And then book 5 looks to the final king, the new David, who will reign over Zion. The purpose for this is you need to study the whole Psalms in order to understand how to interpret a specific Psalm. Because you're going to interpret a psalm differently if it appeared in the third book of the Psalter than if it appears in the first. Now, admittedly, worship leaders are notorious for ripping verses out of context because they're pretty. I just want to remind you that it doesn't matter how pretty that Old Testament verse is or how beautiful that song is that the other church is doing, that ch- that lyric will never apply to you and your family and your children and their children and their children for a thousand generations the way that you want it to. The reason why I'm making this point is because I'm going to preach this Davidic psalm differently than had it appeared in earlier books of the Psalter. I believe that this Psalm 86 is placed right in the middle of the Psalms of the Sons of Korah for a reason. So we're going to look at why somebody did that on purpose. So let's talk about the Psalms of the Sons of Korah, which are this Psalm's immediate context. See, the Psalms of the Sons of Korah are divided into two groups. First, you have Psalm 42 through 49, which is the first grouping of the Psalms of the Sons of Korah. And then there's a break, and then you come back to them in Psalm 84 through 89, and you'll see a Psalm of David is snuck into the middle of them. Now, what's most important is that you see the parallels between the Psalms. Psalm 42 and 43 are parallel to Psalm 84. They're both requesting deliverance and yearning to be back in the presence of the Lord and to worship at his temple. Psalm 44 corresponds to Psalm 85. Psalm 46, 47, 48 are talking about the Lord's victory over his city, great city Zion. Psalm 87, which corresponds to them, talks about the citizenship. That it's a city that's going to be made up of people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation on the earth. And then Psalm 49 corresponds to Psalm 88. Notice that our psalm, Psalm 86, finds no corresponding or counterpart in the earlier psalms of the sons of Korah. Now our psalm is a royal psalm. It's written by King David, and he launches into this prayer for deliverance from his distress. So let's read together. Incline your ear, O Lord. Answer me, because I'm poor and needy. Guard my life, because I'm godly. Deliver your servant. You are my God, and you Your servant is trusting. Be gracious to me, Lord, because I have called on you all the day long. Make the life of your servant glad, because in you, Lord, I lift up my life. Because you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in love to all who call on you. Give ear, Lord, to my prayer and pay attention to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my distress, I call on you and you answer me. The psalmist is distressed by a situation going on around him. We'll get more details on that later. But he's being persecuted, and his life is being sought after. And he's looking, and even, these are imperatives, strongly requesting, commanding even, the Lord to deliver him. Now, the reason that he's expecting deliverance from the Lord is really interesting. Listen to what he says. He says, deliver me because, in verse 2, because I'm godly. Verse 3, because I call on you. Verse 4, because I lived up my life to you. Also note that in this psalm, unlike others, there's no admission of guilt. The psalmist doesn't confess anything that he has done wrong. Now, already, we're only seven verses into this, and there's tons of application for us. One, just because you see a prayer in the Old Testament does not mean you can go and pray that same prayer. Do not go home tonight, fold your hands, get down on your knees and say, Lord, I pray that you just deliver me from the stresses at work because I'm godly and pious and more humble than anyone else around me. You can't pray that way because David was in a different context than you are. You see, David had all the promises of Deuteronomy 28 that are promised to Israel bestowed on him. What's more, he was promised victory over his enemies in the Davidic covenant, and these do not apply to you. But that doesn't mean there's nothing that you can't be learned from his prayer, right? Where did he turn in the time of distress? He's turned to the Lord. Where should you turn in time of your distress? You should also turn to the same person who's able to deliver David is also able to deliver you. Also, look, how often is this psalmist praying? He says he calls out to the Lord all the day long. How often should we pray? Our apostles told us the same thing. Pray without ceasing. Also note that this king is being persecuted by adversaries. I want you to note that there's a real close connection between the well-being of the king, whether for blessing or cursing, and the well-being of the people. Genesis chapter 20 verse 3 is a story of Sarah and Abraham, and they're crossing through a land that belongs to the king there called Abimelech, and the king looks at Sarah, thinks she's pretty, and wants to marry her. Abraham says, okay, that's fine. She's my sister. That's the situation we're in. But that night, God comes to Abimelech in a dream, and he says, Behold, you are a dead man, because the woman whom you've taken, she is another man's wife. Now, Abimelech had not approached her, and he said, Lord, will you kill an innocent people? Now, notice what the Lord's warning was. You are a dead man. But Abimelech understood that. That meant everybody was going to die. There's a close relationship between what happens to the king and what happens to the people. New Testament authors are going to pick up on that theme in a huge way as they tie our fate to the fate of our Savior. Now in verse 5, look and see what who's God's love and forgiveness for. It says it's for all who call on you. Listen to John Calvin. He uses the term all that every man without exception, from greatest to least, may Be encouraged and confidently betake himself to the goodness and mercy of God. That God's love and forgiveness is available to everyone who calls on him. Good, bad, right, or wrong, doesn't matter. The Lord is able to forgive you if only you call on him. Now, after David takes courage in the promises and faithfulness of God, he breaks out into song. So this is the second part of our song right here. He says it's a song Sing a song to the Lord, praising him for his greatness among the nations. I think that's the important point in the song that he sings. Let's read. No one is like you among the gods, Lord, nor is there anything like your deeds. All the nations which you have made will come and worship before you, Lord, and they will glorify your name because you are great and you do marvelous things. You are God alone. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I should walk in your faithfulness. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Let me glorify your name forever because your love is great on me and you will deliver my life from the lowest shield. Now, this song that he sings is divided into two parts or two verses or stanzas. And verses 8 through 10, the first part, he declares the uniqueness of our God and what is owed to our God in corporate worship. Verses 11 through 13 centers on the idea of his personal response to the Lord and the glory that this king owes him. And the poetic unit that, divi- that holds this whole song together is that our Lord is sovereign over the three realms of creation. In verse 8, he compares himself to other gods and says that our gods is greater. The celestial brings or the heavens are brought into view. In verse 9, we see our Lord— sh- His lordship over the nations. And then all the way down in verse 13, you'll see, yes, that our Lord is even Lord of the underworld. So it starts off by comparing our gods to the hypothetical gods that exist among the nations. It says, there's no one like you among the gods, Lord, nor is there any like your deeds. This verse is talking about the uniqueness of our God compared to the hypothetical existence of others. It's not affirming that other gods exist, but is asking the question, if the other gods do exist, still our God is greater. If you compare our God to other gods that might exist among the nations, say Zeus, Athena, Jupiter, Baal, Ishtar, Canaan, El, and others, you'll find that only our God is all-powerful. All knowing. That our God is more present with us. He's omnipresent, and maybe the kicker, our God is more loving, all loving. Look at the stories of the other ancient gods. They're not good beings. But at the end of the day, our psalmist isn't ignorant. He knows that ontology or existence is an important attribute that our God has alone. He says in verse 10, because you are great and do marvelous things, you are God alone. He, of course, is here alluding alluding to the Shema of Deuteronomy 6, 4, which emphatically says that there is no God but one. Now, the first part of this verse hinges around verse 9, which is its centerpiece. And it says in verse 9, All nations which you have made will come and worship before you, Lord, and they will glorify you. Your name. Here our psalmist is looking forward to the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that all nations would enter into God's Blessing and he's looking forward to the day when the nations come and worship the Lord. He says that God has made them He's here comparing the nations to other works of God's creation just as God made the Sun the moon the stars So God has made the nations that he created the nations from one man Adam and from Adam came all nations and to all nations They still ought to submit themselves to the Lord just as Adam should have This first prophesies of the day when nations come and worship to the Lord. There's a lot of Old Testament verses that we might turn to that have the same message of the nations coming and bowing down to the God of the Hebrews. Zechariah 2:14, Malachi 1, Micah chapter 4, Zephaniah 2, Isaiah 2, 4, 19, 25, 66, and many others. But I'm going to take my cue that this is a psalm written by David, so I want to turn to an earlier psalm of David. Psalm 22 verse 27 Says all the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord and all the families of the nations shall worship before you For kingship belongs to the Lord and he rules over the nations Now note this is uniquely suited for the Davidic covenant because part of the Davidic covenant had implications for all nations See, God made a promise or a covenant with David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We don't have time to dive into all the details of this covenant, but it included some great promises. First, that David would have a great name, piggybacking on the Abrahamic promise. Secondly, that the Lord would give David rest from all his enemies. And thirdly, that the Lord would establish the house of David forever. Now, David, after he hears this covenant that the Lord's made for him, he goes into the house of the Lord and he prays, Lord, who am I and what is my house that you've done such a thing? And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, for you've spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this instruction shall be for mankind, for humanity, O Lord God. So what he sees here is that the covenant that the Lord had just made of, made with him will have repercussions throughout, he says, for a long time, throughout the rest of history, we'll be seeing the fulfillment of this covenant that God made with David. He even says specifically that it will have ramifications for mankind. You see, the king's job was to represent God's rule and reign on the earth, but because David's God ruled the entire world, therefore, God's king authority ought to extend to god's entire realm that one day a davidic king would rule over all the nations you see psalm 89 which is another psalms uh psalms of the sons of korah which we'll end with when we finish our Korah series fleshes out the implications of the davidic covenant for us a little bit it says in verse 20 i have found david my servant with holy oil i have anointed him i will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. Notice this David's sovereignty over creation. He will cry to me, You are my father, my God, the rock, and my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. You see, kingship in Israel meant that he was going to be the highest king of the, earth. the psalm moves into its second part of this song that he's singing, and he asks the Lord to teach him his way, O oh Lord, that I should walk in your faithfulness and unite my heart to fear your name. I will praise you, Lord, with all my heart. Let me glorify your name forever, because your love is great on me, and I will deliver—you will deliver my life from the lowest shield. Here, the psalmist prays that the Lord teach him his way and unite his heart. Now, Jeremiah 32 is going to pick up on this theme and is going to find its fulfillment in the New Covenant. Listen to Jeremiah 32. It says, I will give them one heart and one way, same thing as what's going on in our text, that they may fear my name, verse 40, and I will make with them any everlasting covenant. You see, what Jeremiah is looking forward to is the day of spiritual renewal that will be unique in the New Covenant when the Spirit indwells the believer. What our psalmist is praying is that the Lord bring spiritual renewal to his people and inaugurate the New Covenant. Now in verse 13, it finishes really interestingly. It requests deliverance from the lowest Sheol. Sheol is the realm of the dead in Old Testament language. Now, our psalmist might be speaking metaphorically here. He might be saying that the situation in which people are trying to kill him is so painful that it's like going through Sheol and he's requesting deliverance. It might be metaphorical like that. But it could also not be. It could be a request from literal Sheol, right? Let's talk for a moment about Old Testament prophecy and how we should expect fulfillments. So prophecy used Some pretty crazy language at times. If you look in the book of Revelation, you see that there's creatures that have heads of lions and the bodies of locusts. And if you take that literally, then should you not, every time you go outside, look up in the sky and search and make sure none of these crazy creatures are flying around and going to attack you? That would be a literal fulfillment of this. But sometimes it's not intended to be taken super literally like that, but sometimes they're symbols that stand for something else. I got an example from you from the the life of Joseph. So Pharaoh, who is king of Egypt at that time, he had a dream and in his dream he sees seven fat cows come out of the Nile and everything's going great for them. And then he sees seven more skinny and vile cows come out of the Nile and they eat the fat cows. Now, if Pharaoh were going to take that literally, he would be rightly standing at his window looking outside at his pasture. And if a servant were to ask him what he was doing, he would say, I'm looking at these cows. I'm waiting for, see the Nile River right here? I'm waiting for seven skinny cows to come out of it, and they're going to eat these fat cows. The servant might think he's crazy, right? But even Pharaoh knew that he wasn't supposed to take this prophecy, literally, and he searched for someone who might interpret it for him. And he found Joseph, and what he understood, Joseph understood that the dream was symbolic, that the seven fat cows were seven years of plenty that were followed by seven years of famine. So I want you to keep that in mind, that sometimes that these are symbolic. So when we come to the Psalms of the sons of Korah and it looks to the great city of the future, Zion, and it sees all the nations gathered inside of her, Psalm 87, or that this city is lifted up above the clouds, Psalm 81, Isaiah chapter 2, or that the river of life is flowing out of it, Psalm 86, 4. We see all the pagan nations and kings dead outside of her gate, Psalm 48, Psalm 46. Maybe we should see this for what it is. A symbol. That the city that's located on the mountain that's lifted up over the earth indicates that God again dwells with humanity. That the slaughter that takes outside of the city of gates indicates that none who don't submit to the sun can enter the new heavens and the new earth. That this river that brings life wherever it goes is a reflection of God's spiritual nourishment and provision for the people of this city remember Jesus himself says I am that living water or if we read that this city has 12 gates that have the names of the 12 apostles on them we should see this not that a city that has literally 12 gates but see that no one enters this city without submitting to the God of our apostles and having that faith which they had in their cornerstone So let's go back to our passage and read verse 13 again with that in mind your love is great on me And you will deliver my life from the lowest shield though This may have in David's original context might have been hyperbolic that he wanted lords to deliver him from a specific enemy or circumstance I think the editors of our Psalter by placing it in the middle of these highly prophetic Psalms invite us to interpret this messianically that The Lord's anointed future King David will be persecuted and will indeed need deliverance from the realm of the dead. This interpretation takes it very, means it's very similar to Psalm 1610, where he says, For you will not abandon, David says this, You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. See, Acts 2 calls David a prophet and says that, What David was speaking was not true of him, but was true of the future David, and they interpret it as referring to Christ. I think there's reason to believe that that's the same idea that's going on here in Psalm 86, that it's projecting this onto the future David. If you're not with me on that, stay tuned because this passage does get quoted in the New Testament, and we'll see how it works itself out there. But let's move on to the third part of our song, which is a returning back to David's earlier prayer. But this time it's a request for deliverance and victory from particular adversaries. He says in verse 14, O God, the proud rise up against me, a ruthless band. Seek my life, and they do not set you before them. You, O Lord, are good and merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithful. Turn to me and be gracious. Give strength to your servant and to the son of your handmaid. Give me a sign for good, and those who hate me will see it and be ashamed because of you. Lord, strengthen me and have compassion on me. We return back to this prayer that he has from deliverance, but we're given some new details here. We see here that a ruthless band or a gang seeks the life of David. In the midst of the persecution, he quotes an earlier passage from Exodus chapter 34 and we'll see what he's doing here is he's relying on the covenantal faithfulness of God. He says for you Lord are good Merciful and gracious slow to anger abounding in love and faithfulness. He's quoting Exodus chapter 34 here Moses had gone back up the mountain again for the second time because he had broken the Ten Commandments of stone at the bottom. You can read Exodus 34 to find out what's going on there and the Lord comes down and descends on him again and proclaims his name, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, abounding in love and faithful to him. Here David is meditating on God's covenantal faithfulness that he will never leave him or forsake him. Is that not something that we can do in our lives, church? We should remember in the midst of our distress the covenantal faithfulness of the Lord. Maybe Romans 8, that the misery we are encountering will work itself out towards some greater good. Now, the ending of this prayer is a really interesting request for deliverance. In verse 17, he says, I want you to give me a sign. Make me a sign for good. And those who hate me will see this sign and they'll be ashamed because of you. Here the king identifies himself again as the Lord's servant, and he requests a sign for the Lord that it be good, and I think this sign will do two things. I think he's still praying for deliverance. So I think this sign will be a deliverance, but it will happen in such a way that the enemies, those who are seeking David's life, will be put to shame because of the Lord. So this miraculous different deliverance will take place and when they see it They will know that only the Lord has done this and they've come against the Lord's Holy one and they will be ashamed because of it Now in keeping with the other messianic notes that take place in the psalm I think we'd be amiss not to look for a fulfillment of this in the life of Jesus You see Jesus's life was indeed sought after By a host of wicked men. Remember, Judas did not go hang Jesus all by himself. A whole mob of people showed up the night that Jesus was betrayed. And there was all kinds of signs given around the crucifixion, from the crown that was placed on Jesus's head, the crown of thorns, or the scepter of reeds in his hand, a purple cloak, that he was exalted on the tree to bear the cross, to bear the curse of the many, and to demonstrate the sign of Jonah to everyone who hated him, that the grave could not hold him or have victory over him. Now perhaps you're still wondering, Andy, you might have just ripped this out of Old Testament context. and You're placing it on Jesus. How do you know that you can do that? Well, I'm taking my cue actually from New Testament authors. This chapter that we're in, Psalm 86, is actually quoted in the New Testament in Revelation chapter 15. In it, he sees, John sees, that the people of God are standing around with harps in their hands. Isn't that really cool? So we will play harps. There you go. They're with harps in their hands, and they're singing a song of Moses and the Song of the Lamb. So what does that mean? The Song of Moses was what the people of Israel sang after they came out of slavery in Egypt. They crossed miraculously into the promised land and they sing the song of Moses in Exodus chapter 15. Here it's called the song also called the song of the lamb because the people who are singing it have also escaped slavery and have found entrance into the promised land and they sing the song of the lamb and they say great and amazing are your deeds O Lord God, the Almighty, just in true are ways, King of the nations, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name, for you alone are holy, and all nations will come and worship you, and your righteous acts will be revealed. Here, in the book of Revelation, chapter fifteen, it's quoting Psalm eighty-six, and I think it's doing it for a particular reason. You see, I think John knew his Old Testament very well, better than any of us, and he knew this particular Psalm, interestingly placed in the middle of the Sons of Korah. And what he saw here was the David that was being persecuted, and the sign that was given here in Psalm 86, and he connects the king of Psalm 86 to the city in Psalm 87, and he sees that Jesus Christ is the Lord of all things. So I have two questions for you of, in closing of, by way of applications. First, I want to ask you, have you come to Jesus? You see, Psalm 86 verse 10 says that all nations will come to him. And I want to ask you, have you come to Jesus? He is the only way to find freedom and redemption from this world and find entrance into the promised land that's waiting for us. My second question to you, Is, are you complacent in your walk with the Lord? Has your relationship with the Lord experienced a stunted growth? You see, it's not okay to be in the same place that you were with the Lord as you were a year ago. You should be continually growing and seeking after the things of the Lord. Second Peter chapter 3 puts it this way, but grow in grace and the knowledge and of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ It's a command to grow in knowledge. Are you renewing your mind? Are you engaging your mind in the things of the Lord? Are you reading good books? Are you meditating on God's Word? Are you going to church? This is how we ought to live as people of the new covenant Now I told you that our sermon today had three parts Starts off with a prayer of deliverance from distress. Where else can you go for deliverance but to the Lord? And as you're seeking to experience this deliverance, we need to be singing to the Lord because he is great among the nations, among your families. Right now, the Lord is great and we need to continually seek deliverance from our adversaries, from the Lord, so that they can see greatness of our Lord and be put to shame because the Lord is exalted in our obedience to him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for psalm 86 father we thank you for being a covenant keeping god that you have been merciful and gracious and slow to anger abounding in love and good to all and that your pardon and that your forgiveness is available to all who call on you may we continually to always rest in your unfailing promise jesus name i pray amen this has been a presentation of crosswinds church thanks for being with us and may God continue to enrich your life.